you'll look in your bulletin, you'll find something that is normally not there, a fairly long handout. Don't be frightened. We have a heavy topic this morning, and this is in response to what we're all thinking about. We are incessantly reminded anytime we turn on the news and practically every real conversation that we have with people, if they'll only tell us the truth, of just how hard this world is, how quickly and cruelly death, illness can come, how people who have a right to be loved and protected and cared for I'm thinking specifically of children are so often neglected and abandoned. And how much simple evil there is in the world. There are natural evils, accidents and natural disasters, and there are moral evils, the kinds of harms that human beings do to themselves and to each other. Most recently, our whole country was shaken. We're still shaking from what happened in Las Vegas two weeks ago. And in a congregation of our size, I suppose eight or nine hundred people call Cross Point home. To know that so many of you were directly affected and that we had survivors in every service last weekend. Some who went home with blood on their clothes and ultimately successful attempts to help and rescue others. It's staggering. And that presses upon us whether we want to think about them or not, the most important questions. Nothing in our culture is particularly tuned or set up to make us think about the hard questions. We'd rather anesthetize ourselves with quick entertainment. And then evil breaks through, then the doctor comes in with bad news, then you hear that your child has been injured, and you're left with these difficult questions of why is the world, why is my life in the shape that I'm in? Today I'd like to try to give an answer. But if you look on your outline, I want to tell you first and most clearly that nothing I say in what follows is in any way meant to minimize the biblical responsibility to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. See, the problem of evil is something that has occupied the world's best thinkers for centuries. But this isn't really an academic subject, it's a personal subject. And it's all too easy sometimes once you see the truth of what the Bible says about the world, which I'm going to try to share with you next, to sound very dispassionate and academic while real people are shedding real tears. And I'm reminded of Job's haunting words when he said to his friends, if you were in my place, I could also talk like you. Nothing that I share with you today is in any way meant to imply that this is an easy problem that merely a biblical or intellectual understanding of why things happen minimizes the suffering. But it is vitally important to have this biblical foundation. Here's the premise. If you understand the reality of sin, 
our world will make sense. Dr. Ken Connolly was one of my first Bible teachers. He legitimately was brilliant. He was actually a genius. He also had a British accent, which made him sound even smarter than he actually was. I've always envied speakers with that particular accent because they can tell you the time of day and sound profound in doing so. <laughs> Dr. Connolly had counterintuitive advice that has taken me over 30 years to understand. He said, when you study theology, if you will begin with sin, everything else will make sense to you. And I thought, well, that, that's a very strange piece of advice. Why ever would I start with sin? Why would understanding what sin is and what sin does, why would that make everything else fall into place? Because some of you have studied theology. Theology is found in big, thick textbooks that try to lay out everything the Bible teaches in an orderly fashion. For those of you who have ever opened a theology textbook or just maybe care to hazard a good guess, if you're studying theology, which is the study of God, what do you think the first chapter is about? God. Makes perfect sense, right? Sin comes somewhere in the middle of the book. Why start there? Why is the reality of sin so important? Because if you understand what it says, what it is, then everything else, including the holiness of God and the death of Jesus and the everyday struggle that every single one of us face, in the small frustrations that you battled through to get here this morning, to the catastrophic illnesses that surprise good people who have done no real harm to anyone in their lives, to the constant necessity we have just to keep working at things so that things don't fall apart. Have you noticed? There's always a problem. The key doesn't work, the car won't start, the kids can't find their shoes. It is a constant battle. And the reason life is the way it is is because of the reality of sin. Let me tell you some biblical things about it. First and most imp importantly, sin is not an academic abstract matter. Sin is personal. Read with me this simple Bible verse, Romans 3.23. Could we read that together? It says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is a fundamental biblical truth. Every single person on earth has sinned. They have literally missed the mark of God's character, of God's holiness, of His goodness, of His justice, of His truthfulness, of God's love, of God's mercy. Everything that God is sets the standard, and every single person who has ever lived falls far short of it. You say, well, that seems obvious. Yes, it is obvious, but we underestimate the severity of that fact. What that normally gets boiled down to in everybody's experience and the way we justify ourselves, the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and we say, well, nobody's perfect. You ever had anybody do something really dastardly to you and then sort of shrug and say, well, you know, we all make mistakes? That's the minimization that every human heart is capable of when it comes to sin. We minimize it, 
We deny it. We shift blame for it. We point to other people who have done far worse things than we have. And in so doing, we feel much better about ourselves. But look carefully at this simple verse. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the problem and that's the standard. The God who made the world and all that is in it A simple survey of creation will tell you what sort of God this is. He is immensely, unfathomably powerful to simply have made all this the way it is. He's also good because he made the universe good. He made it to be enjoyed. The food you enjoyed this morning, every pleasure you've had, I took a walk and got a little run in in the morning fog because I love it when it's foggy here. Part of the excitement is running through Central Park and not knowing who you'll meet. (laughs) Coming upon some other jogger. But just in that little slice of nature to stop in Central Park and watch leaves dripping with the dew and to realize that I've enjoyed so many good things, the love of a good woman, the pleasure of having children and watching them grow up healthy, Art and music and books and all the other things that thrill my heart and thrill yours, those are all evidences of a good God, the universe, contrary to what you're being told in practically every level of American education now, did not simply appear out of nothing. An intelligent, good mind made it. And part of his invitation to us to explore him and to know him is that he made this universe enjoyable and capable of exploration. So we're endlessly fascinated with new discoveries. Why? Because we are made in his image. And he's good and he put his sense of justice in our hearts. The fact that you believe and know and cry and anger about the fact that something is wrong with the world, that alone points back to a moral lawgiver who intelligently makes the world to be enjoyed so that you would know God and love Him and enjoy Him forever. And every single thing in you cries out with an injustice when injustice is done to you. Have you noticed? And we say, hey, that's not right. You can't do that. Well, according to who? The reality and the nature of God that God is good and He has glory is the most fundamental fact in the universe. And the trouble is everybody falls short of it. Listen to Jesus explain it. Jesus' disciples had been criticized for not keeping a tradition of the elders and washing their hands properly before they ate. And Jesus goes to the heart of the matter as He always does. Jesus said, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. Don't miss verse 19. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Jesus literally goes to the heart. He says they didn't wash their hands the way your elders said they should. No big deal. Doesn't hurt anybody. Washing your hands a certain way will never separate anyone from God. Let me tell you what does, Jesus said. Evil thoughts. Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. Let's take his list seriously for just a moment. 
You ever had evil thoughts? He'll say, you mean this morning? (laughs) See, and this is part of the problem. I said that because it's slightly humorous, and everybody laughs in recognition, and that alone tells you what kind of trouble we're in. Evil thoughts are part of the problem. Jesus said it's evil thoughts that defile a person. The trouble is, since this is the only world we've ever known, we're like people born into a dark world. Our eyes are accustomed to the darkness. We cannot imagine a world filled with light. And Jesus says it's these things that every human heart produces that separate people from God, that defile them. Murder. Now, in a congregation our size, I would not doubt that there's someone in one of these three services that's actually been involved in physical murder. And the rest of us will say, well, for shame, I would never. And then Jesus comes along and he says, it's written, don't commit murder, but I tell you that anyone who has anger with his brother, he's committed murder in the heart. You ever wish someone harm? You ever thought to yourself with intensity, the world would be so much better if he were dead? That's murder in the heart. Jesus goes on to say there is adultery and sexual immorality. Again, we may quickly excuse ourselves from adultery, many of us, but Jesus comes along and says anyone who looks at a woman to lust for her in his heart, he's committed adultery in the heart. His body didn't go through with it, but his mind imagined it and desired it. And there's not a healthy person in the world, man or woman, who doesn't stand accused before God if that is the standard. Sexual immorality. When I was a kid, you had to go to creepy places to access pornography. Now it's in your child's pocket through the magic of a cell phone. And the worst, most degrading things that human beings have ever thought to do to each other can all be accessed with a few clicks. Understand what the internet is. It is the most astonishing piece of technology probably in our lifetimes. It is the most catalytic, life-changing technology we have yet to produce. It gives an eight-year-old more information at his fingertips than the astronauts took to the moon. And if you look at the stats and you look at the money, what we've primarily used it for is pornography. What's wrong with the world? Jesus says the human heart. Then there's theft and false witness and slander, and these sound more familiar and not nearly as big of a deal. And everyone I know, including myself, has stolen things. At the very least, I've stolen time from employers because the man said, take an hour, and I took two. And thought to myself, well, I stayed late last Tuesday. He wasn't very nice to me. He owes me. And there is an endless justification of all of these things. And Jesus says these things are what defile a person. Listen to the prophet Jeremiah. This is God speaking to the human condition. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And that's a rhetorical question. No human being can understand the darkness of the human heart. 
Here's something that troubles me. Verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. Would you read the last two lines to him with me? God said, to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. What is the human heart like? It's sick. It's deceitful. So that people who sin are deceived in sinning and deceived by sinning, and they do not understand themselves the gravity of their situation. Here's what that normally looks like. It looks like blame shifting. Has anybody ever experienced blame shifting? You ever had a four-year-old tell you that it's actually your fault? (laughs) That starts early, doesn't it? It's immediate. If I can be candid with you, I've been blamed in two separate countries, in two different churches, for responsible grown people who knew Jesus and knew their Bibles having sexual relationships with each other, and it was my fault. One couple scheduled a meeting to come to my office and say, we've slept together and we're disappointed in you. (laughs) You say, well, that's silly. Yeah, it is. But they were utterly sincere, and since that had already happened to me, I said, well, I'm very sorry. I'll learn a valuable lesson from this. And I said, well, we certainly hope so. And about two months later, we came together again, and the man sidled up to me in a crowd, and he said, hey, Bruce, you remember that, that visit we, my wife and I had with you? They had done this when they were engaged. I said, yeah, I remember. He goes, I'm sorry about that. And I said, that's okay. He goes, yeah, that was kind of crazy. And I said, I know. And he said, well, you didn't say anything about it. And I said, well, that's not the first time that's happened. He goes, really? (laughs) Now, why did that happen? Because the most natural thing in the world, I'm guilty of it too, is to say things that are my responsibility or actually yours or God's or someone's, but certainly not mine. That's the human heart. That's the reality of the issue. This is the problem. When I say that sin is personal, I'm talking specifically to you and to me, of course. But if you leave here with a good laugh thinking about how foolish some people can be, you'll miss the point, and that's part of the deception. It is you individually and every single one of us that is in such trouble, and God Himself is the standard. This is why in the last 20 years, the very idea of God is being attacked with such vigor at every level in our culture, beginning with high-powered intellectuals. Because if God is removed, everything is permitted. If there is no God, if there is no standard, then really what is right and wrong becomes a matter of personal preference. And that's where we're quickly arriving to in our culture, where just about the only taboo that is left without defense or advocates is the abuse of children themselves. Everything else is negotiable. And we find ourselves in our current condition where the only way we have to police and regulate ourselves is with increasingly strict laws and social pressure campaigns based on who can shout the loudest. Why? Because God, the source of morality himself, has been removed. Dr. William Provine, an evolutionary biologist and a devout atheist, was consistent intellectually. Let me listen to what he said shortly before he died. 
Dr. William Provine said, let me summarize my views on what modern evolutionary biology tells us loud and clear. And these are basically Darwin's views. Ready? There are no gods, no purposes, and no goal-directed forces of any kind. There is no life after death. When I die, I am absolutely certain that I am going to be dead. That's the end of me. There is no ultimate foundation for ethics, no ultimate meaning in life, and no free will for humans either. What an unintelligible idea. You understand what he's saying? If we are merely a cosmic accident, who in Carl Sagan's old views are wildly improbable to exist, of course there's no free choice. Of course there's no moral responsibility. We're just an almost miraculous assembly of chemical reactions and electricity. And if truly survival of the fittest is the rule of the land, why shouldn't the strong thrive? And who is one super intelligent monkey to tell another not to kill yet another monkey? That's what we've arrived to. God has a better, clearer, more coherent view. He says, I exist. You were made for my glory. You were made to enjoy me and each other. And your sin, your departure from me, your rebellion against me, your indifference to me is what has ruined everything. Second thought, simple and understood clearly by now by what I've said up to this point, sin is not only personal, it's lethal. It kills everything it touches. It kills everyone who indulges it. Romans 6.23 is what it should say, for the wages of sin is death. What is it that sin kills? Everything. Everything. It ends human life. It ends marriage. It ends friendship. It makes life difficult in every sense. The wages of sin is death. Here's a ray of hope which we'll explore and expand before we're done. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And what this means, number three, is this. Sin is a catastrophe for all of creation. Because sin has entered God's good world, it has literally ruined everything. This is a heavy passage, so I'll read it slowly. Romans 8, 20 and 21. Paul explains what happened to all of creation itself. It says, for the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of Him, God, who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Here's the simple truth from that heavy passage. Everything, the entire system is ruined. And this produces in the world that you and I both enjoy and endure in, it produces both natural and moral evil. Natural evil are disasters that are no one's particular fault. Moral evil are the things that human beings willingly do to another out of cruelty, out of self-seeking, out of revenge. The world is filled with this kind of wrongdoing, and it ruins absolutely everything. So, to some of your questions, 
Somebody said regarding the killer in Las Vegas, how could anyone do that? It's a profound, disturbing question because we're made in the image of God. And anyone who knows anything about killing, even when it's righteous killing, in the line of duty to defend the innocent can tell you how difficult it is to actually pull the trigger and kill another human being and how traumatizing it is even when they know they've defended their life and the life of the innocent. Why? Because we're made in the image of God. And it is destructive to human beings even when they have to righteously defend another. The killer himself is traumatized. How could he do such a thing? Honestly, I have no idea, but this is the nature of sin. Another hard question, why didn't God stop it? And why do good things, why do bad things happen to good people? May I give you something to think about by reversing the question? And I'll just talk about me. If my heart is deceitful, if I lie and cheat and slander and commit sexual immorality, if I was made by God to enjoy Him, and like a petulant child, told the Creator of all things, no, I know better, and chose my own path. May I suggest to you that a greater question might be, why do so many good things happen to a bad man like me? See, because the system is ruined and we intuitively at the same time think that every good thing we enjoy, we deserve. And when things fall apart and we, we're sinned against and our rights are violated, it's at that moment and that moment only that we awaken to the idea that something is terribly wrong. You ever been in a restaurant seeing a child act like an absolute brat and just burn with anger with the kid even though you don't know him? Has that ever happened to you? I wish his mother, boy, if I were his parent, would take care of that real quick. Right? runs screaming through the restaurant, he trips, bangs his head on a booth, and you're secretly happy about it. <laughs> Maybe now he'll be quiet. Now, why are you indignant? That's a universal experience. I've seen that in every country I've ever visited. Why are you so indignant? Because you know that it's not right for someone of that age to speak like that to his mother, to his father. You know that when a four-year-old screams at his mother, I hate you, that that's wrong. May I suggest to you that my sins against God are infinitely worse than anything that child has done in that fit, little fit of rage? And yet, God in His mercy blesses me with so much. The system is ruined. He didn't ruin it. He dealt with it, and He is dealing with the consequences, and we're coming to that in a moment. But what I want you to see is the world that we've created is the result of sin that human beings chose and continue to choose for themselves. So the real mystery is not that terrible things happen to people that we consider and may actually be good people. The miracle is that God's seeing all of this and hearing it 
continues to bless us with life and enjoyment in so many different things and is so seldom thanked or even acknowledged. That's really the mystery. If you'll turn the page, what is God thinking about all this? This is vitally important. First of all, you need to understand God in heaven witnessing all of this, the quiet sins of my heart and the horrors of mass murder and the other things that make us race for the television and will always remember where we were when we heard the news. God witnessing all this is an indignant, righteous judge. And you want him to be that way. You really do, with one exception. Let me illustrate. Suppose I'm running for a criminal judge in Orange County, I'm asking for your vote. Here's my campaign promise. Ready? I want to be Judge Garner. I'm tired of being a pastor. I now want to be a judge. Here's my campaign promise. Vote for me and they all go free. You voting for me? Here's my campaign promise. I'm a good, moral, righteous man. You can talk to anybody you like. Not perfect but a good guy. And because I'm good, I don't care what they've done. I don't care if murderers or admitted rapists who celebrate their crimes in front of me show me the video and dance a jig for joy that they've actually done this because I'm a good person. Whoever gets in my courtroom, they're walking because I'm good. You voting for me? Why not? be wrong, a miscarriage of justice. God is a righteous judge. Psalm 7 verse 11, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. A different translation puts it more pointedly. God is a righteous judge and He is angry with the wicked every day. See, I work as a pastor and I volunteer as a police chaplain and I can tell you from both of those worlds, Part of what makes you tired is seeing and hearing the stories of the terrible things that people do to each other. And the terrible things that happen to people that are no one's particular fault. To come to those scenes, to hear those stories, to keep handing Kleenex to people who are crying tears because of those things, it's burdensome. Now imagine, if you will, for a moment, if your imagination can expand that far, imagine being the God who knows all and sees all, hearing every cry for help, every gunshot, every scream of terror and pain that is unjustly inflicted on human beings, and that being your reality every single waking moment of humanity. That's why one of the prophets said, it is by your mercy that we are not consumed. God is a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation every single day, and you actually want God to be like that because you don't want the bad guys to get away with it. You want justice to be done. Do you know when you and I don't want justice to be done? When it comes to our case. Justice for all, mercy for me is the cry of every human heart, and there is good news on that point. God is not only a righteous judge, He is also, number two, patient and willing to forgive anyone who repents. 2 Peter 3.9, Peter is speaking about the end of history and God's ultimate judgment. 
But he gives us this beautiful promise and view into God's character that explains why I still draw breath. Read 2 Peter 3, verse 9 with me, please. It says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is not slow in bringing justice to the world. He's patient. Because God Himself knows what men and women deny, that His justice is real and severe and heavy and good. And as one famous author said, I knew we all, I know we all have to die. He said this on his deathbed, but somehow I thought an exception would be made in my case. <laughs> we all think that. We all minimize, we all recalibrate, we all find ways of saying to ourselves that evil is not that evil and death is not that near. God knows different. He knows the truth. That's why He is not slow to judge. On the contrary, He does this because He's patient toward you. He's patient toward me because He is not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all, given that time, should reach repentance. And says, okay, enough of these uncomfortable epistles. Let me hear from Jesus. Jesus is so nice, right? There's a movement in Christianity called Red Letter Christians, and they, they kind of set aside other Bible writings. They really just focus on the Gospels because the caricature is that Jesus is just this utterly accepting person without any hard edges. Let me tell you, no good person is free of hard edges. It's the hard, righteous edges that make people good, and Jesus is perfect. In fact, He's God in the flesh come to save us. And Jesus was told a terrible story one day of the worst kind of moral evil that could visit anyone, Luke 13. It says there were some present at that very time who told Him about the Galileans. Those are Jews in the region of Galilee. And look at what happened to them. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Let me tell you what that means. That means that a normal group of people were one day gathered for worship in the fishing region of Israel in Galilee. Ordinary, hardworking people that fed the rest of the country were one day gathered at worship and Pilate through the agency of his soldiers, stormed into that place and slaughtered them while they worshiped so that their blood mixed with the sacrifices they were presenting to God. In our world, that means that federal agents storm into churches across America and shoot people dead while they pray. And of course, they came to Jesus and they said, what do you think? Isn't that the worst thing that's ever been done to us? They were killed while they worshiped? Listen to Jesus' answer. He answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Because, see, that's what happens at the scene of every catastrophe. People immediately recalibrate and tell themselves in some way why some people had it coming. 
There's a brutal accident in the middle of the night. Well, you know, everybody knows if you're out at 2 a.m., you just got to take your chances. This week on Facebook, a friend of mine posted a prayer request because one of the fittest people alive had a blood clot. As expected, within 10 minutes, say, you know, it looks good on the outside, but how was the diet? Because you can be really strong and be killing yourself on the inside with a bad diet. Why do people do that? Because we're all trying to say in some way, I'm smarter than that and that won't happen to me. I'm better than that, and that kind of evil won't visit me. Jesus says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Listen to the answer. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Whoa, what happened to cuddly Jesus? (laughs) Nothing special about them. They were no better or worse than you. Everyone will die unless they repent, unless they come back to God. That's moral evil. Here's natural. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. That's a bad day for several families. People went out and perhaps took shelter in the shade of a tower because it was time to eat. And while they rested, the last thing they heard on earth was a crack as a fatal flaw in the tower was revealed, and it fell on them and killed them without warning and without mercy. No one's fault. In a fallen world, in a ruined system, things wear out, things fall down, sometimes without warning. Jesus says, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Read verse 5 with me. Jesus said, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, let me ask you, do you think Jesus is being harsh? Because that's a brutal thing to tell someone. It is hard, but it's loving because it's true. Jesus knows the truth about God. He is an indignant, righteous judge, but He is patient and willing to forgive anyone who repents. Finally, this is the good news of the gospel. Everything sin has ruined can be redeemed through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. This is what the back of your Scriptures tell you. You see, the back of the Scriptures, the back of the book, the future history that God has promised, as He promised Jesus in the past, He promises a new creation now. Paul, writing to the Colossians, says about Jesus, in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In other words, into this ruined system, the very person of God, the very character, identity, who God is, dwelled in Jesus. God became flesh. The Word became flesh. And what God was doing was this, through Him, through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. How did he do it? Making peace by the blood of his cross. Here's the offer to you. Here's your new identity if you trust and follow Jesus. You who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Here's what God's at work at in you. Christian. 
in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. There was a time, if you are following Jesus, if you've turned away from your sin and asked Him to save you instead, what is true for me is also true for you. There was a time when you took no account for God. And though you are a created being with a very limited lifespan and a very tenuous grasp on the world that God made, God in His mercy loved you, and not loving the thought of your death and justice falling upon you, He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to walk through all of human life and every single thing that Jesus named and every single thing that has ever tempted and trapped you was faced by Jesus, but He walked right through it without sin to offer His life as a substitute for your own. So that you, Paul says, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, and because of that you were doing evil deeds, Jesus has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death. That's what Dr. Connolly was driving at. Sin is so severe that of course it took the death of the Son of God to get it out in the way. This is why every political campaign and every law, even righteous laws, will ultimately be well-intended but insufficient because nothing can change the human heart aside from the grace of God who made it. And that's why I grow so weary with ideas from every quarter, including well-meaning godly Christians saying that the changes are on the outside. They're not. Unless there is genuine conversion and genuine repentance that comes back to God, we're wrapping clean gauze around festering limbs. It may be hidden. It may be contained for a time, but no real change will be affected until the healing, miraculous, life-giving grace of Jesus is accepted by a repentant individual. This is the heart of the issue. God will willingly welcome Anyone who actually turns from themselves, that's what repentance means. It's a U-turn. It's a giving up on me and a surrender to Him. When that happens, you have this promise from Jesus, anyone who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. And you read Scripture and you read of people who were very far from God, who be, behaved and believed in the most wicked ways, men and women, made new, completely transformed. Why? Because the grace of God was sufficient to overcome their sin if only they would repent. Here's the end of the book. Read Revelation 21, 1 through 5 with me. This is the future. The Bible says… Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also He said, Write this down. 
for these words are trustworthy and true. So what do you do? You repent and you turn to Jesus if you don't know Him. That's your only hope. More education won't help. I'm not inviting you to adopt a new moral code. You'll fail in it too. I'm not asking you to change religions. Religion is an invitation to try harder and do better and see if God will accept you. By your own efforts and by my own efforts, He never will. He can't. Your very heart and mind are set against Him, and you give evidence of it every single day of your life, and your conscience troubles you on any self-aware day because you know you're continually falling short. What I'm telling you is the good news that Jesus literally laid down His life to bridge the gap between you and a holy, just God. If you'll give up, if you'll do the hardest thing in the world and humble yourself and give up on yourself and trust Him, He'll save you and give you a new heart. You'll be subjected to the same rigors and troubles and cruelties of a sinful world because the system is ruined, but someday everything that is evil will be wiped away and God will keep His promise to make all things new. And in the meantime, you can live for righteousness. In the meantime, you can go into places not to give them a theological lecture like the one you've just heard, not to be the miserable comforters of Job's friends to say, well, you know, I'm glad I'm here. Dry your tears. Pastor talked about this on Sunday. But to sit down and weep with those who weep and to advocate for righteous, certainly, and to be zealous for good deeds in a dying world, but never to misplace the faith that good deeds alone and pressure and campaigns and persuasion from one human being to another will ever be enough to affect the righteousness of God. To put the priority where Jesus does, of sinners, men, women, and children, finally coming to an end of themselves and coming in genuine, humble surrender to Him, and then saying for the rest of their lives, until He makes everything new, Jesus, I am your disciple. You lead, I'll follow. I'll cry the way you cried. I'll love the way you loved. I'll speak against evil the way you did. I'll offer forgiveness in your name to people who are willing to listen, not to me, but to you. Then we will be his disciples, and then we will serve God's purposes in the world, in a world that is filled with evil. But thank God in a world where death, degradation, and sin do not have the last word. I'm mindful again that for too many of you, this is not an academic topic. This may give you some theological hooks to hang some of the things that are happening to you, but your troubled marriage, your wayward children, what the doctor told you last week, the sudden death that you've experienced in the bosom of your family, all of those things are not academic to you. They're real and hurtful. Understand after all this, we want to be those who would do what God would do in, your, in relationship with you. We want to weep with you with, if you're weeping. We want to rejoice with you if you're rejoicing. But having shown that we've loved you, and this is how you help people in crisis, you love them first, you listen first, you cry with them first, and then when they're quite sure that you love them, you point them to the only hope they have. 
not to be better next time, not to be more careful next week, not to try to do any better, but to turn themselves over to the one who made peace through the blood of His cross and who promised to make everything new. Shall we talk to Him in prayer right now? Could I invite you to pray? Let me talk very directly to those of you who have been considering Jesus, but you're not sure you are yet His disciple. I'm asking you specifically if you will turn away from your sin, if you'll repent and give yourself over to Jesus, whether you'll entrust yourself to Him. I'm not asking you to accept all of my ideas. I'm not asking if there are further questions. Of course there are. These are deep, perplexing questions. I'm asking you something much simpler. No easier, but much simpler. Are you ready now to give up on yourself and start trusting the one who died for your sins? Will you trust him to give you eternal life? That's his promise. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. That's his promise. That's his identity. That's his offer to you. Is there anyone here this morning who says, Bruce, I get that much. I need to be saved by Jesus. I need to turn myself over to him. If that's your situation, could I just ask you to slip your hand up and put it right back down? Yes, thank you. Anyone else? Thank you. Anyone else like that? I'm not going to ask anything else. Certainly not going to put you on the spot or embarrass you. I'm just asking to help you identify your need and not think it's about somebody else. I'm asking you for you. Anyone else? Yes, thank you, ma'am. Anyone else? Could I just invite those of you then who raised your hands? For those of you who wanted to, know that Jesus is calling you to turn yourself over to Him in prayer and say, Lord, I am sorry for my sin. You're right in your judgment. I've sinned. I've offended you, and I'm sorry. I accept your gift. I accept your sacrifice in my place. Please save me. Make me your disciple. Give me eternal life. I'm not trusting myself. I'm trusting you to do that. Give me new life and help me to obey you. In Jesus' name, amen.